How marvelous, how wonderful is His love for us. Greetings from the Baptist General Convention of Texas. I want to say thank you to First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches because, because you give to Mary Hill Davis and you give to the state convention, I'm able to do what I do. For the last 20 years, I've been able to direct in youth evangelism with Super Summer and now evangelism and apologetics around the state because you give. And so I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for giving and for supporting the Texas Baptist Convention and all the work we do. I, I, I've worked there for 20 years now, and I'm still learning of all the different ministries of Texas Baptist along the border, overseas, throughout this, the, this great country. Uh, Texas Baptist is far-reaching, and I appreciate those who give to support that and make it happen. And happy Thanksgiving as well. God's given us a lot to be thankful for. And as we open up His Word today, let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You for the time that we have together to open Your truth and Your Word. And Father, I pray that despite this messenger, Your message will be abundantly clear. Teach us through Your truth today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, like myself, I grew up in church, as their old proverbial saying, I had a drug problem. My drug problem was that I was drugged to church three times a week, right? That was my drug problem. I was born on the front pew, that kind of thing. I was, the, I, matter of fact, I'm a little worse than the average church brat. Um, I, I am a preacher's kid. My dad was a youth pastor of the church I grew up, grew up in. So I was at all of the church functions. I was at the Disciple Nows. I would go to all the youth camps. We would travel around and go to all these campgrounds. And I was kind of like that little kid that was always there. I was the mascot in a sense. You know, I was just a little kid and all the high school boys would carry me around on their shoulder and the high school girls would kiss me on the cheek and tell me how cute I was and have me sit on their lap during the worship service. It was a tough life, y'all. I wouldn't trade growing up in the church for anything. I love the church. And my dad later became the evangelism director, youth evangelism director, one of the roles that I served in for Texas Baptist. And so I grew up around evangelism. And if you're anything like me, you've heard many sermons and trainings on evangelism. Some of you may remember the one verse evangelism strategy or the, the bridge to life tracks or evangelism explosion, learning to share your testimony. You've probably heard dozens upon dozens of sermons on evangelism. And so I get it. I know that you've probably heard a lot about evangelism, but still so few people in church actually evangelize. And I remember one pastor asking this question, which is the best methodology for evangelism? Which is the best tool for evangelism? And then his answer, he came back and said, the one you use. In other words, if you're actually willing to share your testimony, to use the bridge to life, to share the one virtue of evangelism, use evangelism explosion, whatever God has given, gifted you with and the ability to do, use it. Because God's given us all kinds of tools to spread his news, to share Jesus with other people. The other question comes back, well, okay, but which one is the most effective? Surely Barna or one of these other state conventions that you work for, or SBC's convention, or what, somebody's done some studies to find out which one is actually the best methodology, the best tool, the most effective tool. But I thought instead of bringing you what Barna says or the experts from the church say, I, I thought I would come from a different direction. There was actually a study done asking the lost, those outside the church, what do you think about our evangelism efforts? What does the unchurched think about 
Christians, the church's evangelism efforts. There was a lot of different replies to that, as you can imagine. But when they consolidated the research, there was one major theme that came through all of the studies and surveys. And that was this, your friendship is more important to me than your faith. Your friendship is more important to me than your faith. Now, we as Christians, we know that your faith is obviously more important than any individual friendship, but remember, this is the unchurched. These are those who don't see our faith as paramount or most important. They see it as a secondary thing. What they care about the most is what your relationship is with them. Are you just trying to sell them a product? Remember, right now in our world, we have a lot of people looking for, uh, you know, the attention of their audience. They're trying to get their attention because they're trying to sell something. And so a lot of the unchurched folks, they see anything we do, even if it's with good intentions, as just trying to sell them something. And so they don't care so much about the faith that you're bringing them, the product that you're trying to sell them. They care more about how do you feel about them personally? It's kind of like the old saying, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've heard that statement before. It's the same basic principle. They they don't want to know about your product, your faith, whatever your belief system is, until they understand that you care about them, that you're actually trying to get to know them personally. You know, it's interesting to me that if Christianity was on Amazon, many of you are familiar now with Amazon, it's the way most of us shop these days. And one of the things on Amazon that's very popular is the five-star rating system right? And it's interesting when you study how Christianity is viewed by the unchurched, if Christianity were a product on Amazon, it might receive about two stars. I don't know about you, but that's a little bit disheartening that only two stars would be credited to Christianity. But even lower than that, evangelism, if it were a product on Amazon, would even be lower, maybe only one star. There is good news. If Jesus was ranked on the five-star system, even in the unchurched world, he would still receive five stars. Isn't that amazing? It may be that they have a misconception of who Jesus is, granted, but it's still interesting that the name of Jesus is still very popular and very much accepted within the Christian world, the the unchurched world, the non-Christian world. They still see Christ as someone that they should look to, to follow, that someone who has obviously changed our world in a positive way. They, they still see the name of Jesus in a positive light, even though they may not see Christians or Christianity or evangelism efforts in a positive way. What's that tell you? Everything we do needs to center around Jesus. Everything we do needs to be modeled on Jesus. So let's look at that today by looking at the model who is Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, turn with me in your scripture if you have it. It'll also be there on the screen for you. Beginning in verse 35 of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news from the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Let's notice the first principle that Jesus teaches us. He teaches us that he went to their towns, their villages, their synagogues. He went to them. Instead of saying, come to me, he was willing to go to where they're comfortable. Now, there's nothing wrong with inviting people to church. I hope that you do that. In fact, you should invite people to come to church. 
But the model that Jesus gives us first and foremost when it comes to evangelism uh, affecting other people is to go where they're comfortable, to go where they are. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He goes to where they are to teach them and to preach, to tell them the good news. So he preaches the good news and he meets their needs. Notice that in order for him to be heard, he was willing to hear what their needs were. He doesn't just heal them without knowing what their needs are. He finds out where they have the need, and he's willing to heal them, to meet them at their place of need. There's connection that's taking place because he's willing to meet the need in order to be heard. In other words, they know how much he cares in order to hear him preach. Both of them are necessary. You can't give up one without the other. There are a lot of really great organizations out there that are you know, building uh, buildings and and refugees and wells, digging wells and bringing shoes to those without uh, uh, shoes in in, in, uh, impoverished places and feeding the hungry, but they're not doing it under the name of Christ. And oftentimes they're making a difference when it comes to the social needs of people, but they're not meeting the spiritual needs of people. They're putting souls, if you will, on their feet, but not meeting the soul that matters, the eternal soul. They're not meeting the need that's really there, that's deeper down. And what Jesus teaches us is that both are necessary. Both hands are necessary when serving. The hand that preaches the good news as well as the hand that cares for the need of those you're preaching to. And that brings a message that's powerful and effective. And that develops compassion within us, not just a sales pitch that we're trying to win somebody over to our way of thinking, in our belief system or to our political party or to anything else. Instead, what are we doing? We're trying to help them at their greatest place of need, finding where they hurt the most and how we might meet that need so that we may also meet the greater need that they may not even be aware of, the need for their soul to know Christ, to have a relationship with Jesus. That compassion is seen here in verse 36 that can develop only when we go to where they are and learn their needs. Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Listen, having a compassionate heart means that we see others the way that Jesus saw them. Let me say that again. To have a compassionate heart means we see others through the eyes of Jesus as lost, lonely, as loved, I'll just be honest with you, sometimes I don't see the lost that way in my flesh. In fact, when you watch the 24-hour news cycles, you know what those are, don't you? I mean, it's, it's basically stories about lost people acting lost. It really is. One story after another of some tragedy or some uh, hardship or some uh, crime or something that's happened, and these 24 news cycles are just story after story of people who don't hold to my values who don't believe like I do, doing things that seem to be destroying my world, my country, my state, and it makes me angry. And I have to be reminded over and over again by the Spirit within me, Leighton, it shouldn't surprise you that lost people act lost. It it shouldn't surprise you that those who are acting that way are acting that way because it's a symptom to a deeper disease, a problem of sin, and if not for the grace of God, you would be right there doing exactly those same things because you need a savior too. We all do. And when you have that kind of mindset where you see 
the lost in the world acting lost, instead of looking at them with anger building up within you, thinking to yourself, I've got to get a bigger picket sign than their picket sign. I've got to put a bigger bumper sticker on my car than the one on their car to counteract whatever violence they're bringing against my values, whatever uh, cause that they're arguing for that I disagree with. Instead, you look at them through the eyes of Christ and you have compassion for them because you see them as lost sheep without a shepherd. They're hurting. They're diseased. They need a physician. They don't need another critic. They don't need another judge. They need Jesus. They need peace. When we watch the wars overseas and we watch all the things that are happening in our world, the first thing that we as Christians should think is they need Jesus because Jesus brings peace. Jesus makes us whole. He removes that disease that corrupts our minds and our hearts to think things that are completely antithetical to the truth of the Word of God. It shouldn't surprise us that lost people act lost. Now, let me just say this compassion doesn't just come naturally. It comes through prayer. It comes through time spent getting to know people, getting to learn their story. And sometimes we just don't want to take the time to hear someone else's story. We don't want to take the time to hear what they've gone through. I know this is a silly analogy, but I'm a child of the 80s, grew up in the 80s when the, the Star Wars series hit. I remember yeah, and the real Star Wars, you know, back in the 80s, right? The good Star Wars. Uh, my, my, I had two older brothers, and so they had all the action figures, and I was always stealing them from them and getting in trouble and mixing them up with my G.I. Joes and playing them together and everything. And so I, I love Star Wars, and I remember the villain, Darth Vader. And it was so easy just to hate Darth Vader because he was he's such a good villain. I mean, the dark mask, he breathed deep, and he could choke people out with his hand. I mean, he was the perfect villain. I never dreamed that years later as an adult, I would watch the prequels and learn the story of a little blonde-headed boy named Anakin Skywalker and just have compassion for what he went through, losing his mother and his father and all the problems that he had. I found myself having compassion for Darth Vader of all people. Why? I heard his story. I heard where he came from. I had compassion on him. Why? Because I found out where he came from. Think about what happens when you see that person on the news or you see that person out in the, the, the world that you live in, your job, your workplace, your school, who's acting completely antithetical to everything you believe about the Scripture, everything you believe about God, everything you believe in the values of your life that you hold dear. And ask yourself, do you know their story? Do you know what they've come through? You know what they've gone through. Why, why may they be acting in the way they're acting? It says, my mom used to tell me sometimes, hurt people hurt people. What does that mean? When they're hurting, sometimes what do they do? The only thing they know to do is to hurt others because misery loves company. And so oftentimes when people are hurting, they try to hurt others. And sometimes those are just outward signs of something that's going on inwardly. And when we can look past our present circumstances, Look past the natural anger that we have for those who are holding to values differently than ours. We can look past those things and we can see them as Christ sees them, as lost sheep without a shepherd, that compassion can begin to grow within us. And it takes time to do that. It takes commitment to do that, which is what we see in verse 37. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Now stop there. Because when you see the word harvest, only those who are farmers in the room who've done a harvest know 
It takes a great amount of commitment to be a farmer and to bring in the harvest. It's a year-round commitment, and it is hard work, daily hard work. There's a commitment level to bring in harvest. So I don't think it's any accident that Jesus uses harvesting as a farmer as his example for what it means to be an evangelist, to be one who preaches the word. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Listen, committing yourself to connect and develop a compassion for the lost and pray for them regularly, that can be difficult, but this is what God has called us to do as his followers. He has called us to the field of harvest. And I know that puts us out of our comfort zone. I know it is difficult. I've been in many situations where I feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit to engage in a conversation with someone who I know needs to hear the good news of Jesus. And I'll just be honest with you, sometimes I just don't want to do it. I don't want to have that conversation. I don't want to confront. I'm not a confrontational person. I don't want to put them out. I've felt all those things before, but I have never, ever regretted one time when I've brought up the name of Jesus in a conversation. Never once. It hasn't always turned out good. There's some people who have a very vitriolic reaction to when you bring up the name of Jesus or Christianity. But I have never once ever regretted not bringing up, uh, bringing up the name of Jesus. What I have regretted is when I've failed to do so, when I've missed an opportunity that I know God gave me, I have regretted those times. It's amazing what God can do, even in the times when the response is not immediately a positive response, how I'll hear sometimes months or years later, I got a Facebook message uh, about six weeks ago from a guy I went to high school with that used to make relentless fun of me because of my Christianity, who has now come to know Christ and wrote me a letter thanking me for living an example of Christ in high school. I couldn't believe it. That's just amazing. You don't always get to see those kinds of letters, by the way. Sometimes you won't know until heaven the impact you might have had on somebody's life and how they're being affected by how you're living for Christ. Committing yourself to connect and develop a compassionate relationship with others takes time. It takes effort. And committing yourself also starts with prayer. Notice it says to ask the Lord of the harvest. That means that we talk to God about the lost before we talk to the lost about God. We pray. Listen, prayer changes things. I, I'm a firm believer in that. It changes our attitude and our heart toward the lost. If you have somebody in your workplace, at your school, in your family that's really, really rubbing you the wrong way and is really difficult for you to love, commit to pray for them. Even if it's just a 30-second second prayer every day, it will, it will change. It will revolutionize how you view that person. I promise you. If you don't believe me, try it. You say a prayer for that person. Say, God, help me have a compassion for that person. And it's amazing what God will begin to do to develop within you a love and a compassion that can only come from the Father. That can only come from the Spirit of God living within us to give us a compassion for the lost. Because prayer changes things. Prayer changes your own heart, and it also changes those around you, whether you recognize it or not. My dad, I mentioned him earlier, um, he, he taught me this through a story he told. In fact, I would often travel around with my dad when he would preach at different places, and sometimes I would hear some of the same stories and same sermons uh, more than once, as you can imagine. Uh, as my, my own children have done when they travel with me, they hear some of the same messages occasionally. 
And I remember there was one particular story, however, that I just loved that my dad would tell. In fact, when we were riding the car places, sometimes I would even ask him, hey, dad, are you going to tell that story about Chucky Pool? I want to hear that story. I love that story. And sometimes he says, well, I wasn't really planning on doing that today. And I'll see, yes, I'll see if I can work it in because I love that story because it just meant so much to me. And it was a story about my dad's very first church as a youth pastor. He was also a music minister in the church that had a dual role, as often was the case back in those days, especially. And it was a church much like this church here um, in, a, in a very Baptist belt type of town. And my dad was uh, the, the, the youth pastor and was new to the church and kind of getting to know everybody within the church. And it was Promotion Sunday. Y'all may have even recently had one of these Promotion Sundays when all of those in the sixth grade, I don't know what age y'all do it here, but in the sixth grade would promote up into the seventh grade and they would get to be finally a part of the youth ministry. And that's so exciting because they get to go on all the exciting trips and all the kinds of things. And so a lot of those sixth graders are just can't wait before they promote up into the youth ministry. And this was at one particular Promotion Sunday and my dad was introducing what was called the prayer target. And it's just this large archery kind of bullseye looking target, much like this. And what he would do is he'd say, okay, all of you need to pick up one of these little map pens at the door and all of them would pass them around. And there's this little round map pen. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that map pen and on the backside of it, I want you to write the initials, just the initials of someone you know in your family, in your neighborhood, in your school, at your workplace, wherever it may be. Just write the initials of someone who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't have a relationship with Christ that you want to pray for. And on the other side, what we're going to do, just write your first name. And then here in a minute, we're going to have you all come up. And on the outer ring, the outside of that big prayer target, we want you just to pin your name facing out so that we can see your name and we can pray for you as you're praying for the person represented on the back of that pen. He said, just a visual way for you to remember to pray for the lost, that we can pray for you as you're praying for the lost. And so he introduces this prayer strategy to the entire youth ministry. And then he looks out and he asks them, would any of you like to share who you're praying for? And little Chucky, he was so excited about being there in the youth ministry for the very first time. He's sitting on the very front row and he's the first one to raise his hand. And my dad calls on him and he stands up and he turns to the crowd very bravely. And he says, would you all please pray for my father? He's an atheist. Now, just keep in mind that atheism today is much more known and popular in the internet world. But back prior to the internet, back in this day, atheists, especially in a Baptist belt town like this one, um, were unheard of ultimately. And for him to stand up and say, pray for my dad, he's an atheist, that kind of brought a gasp to the room. In fact, my dad began to make some connections and connecting some dots and things he had remembered hearing from the other staff being a part of this church. And he, he recognizes, oh, okay, this is the oldest child of Dr. Charles Poole, the, the, the bank owner in town. And he'd remember hearing stories that this Dr. Charles Poole, he owned the bank and very influential in city council. And he was one of those mean kind of atheists that was always going to the the, the public meetings and trying to get the, um, you know, the nativity scenes taken off of the public lawns, that kind of atheist. And my dad remembers thinking to himself, oh, I, this guy's so far lost, prayer ain't even going to help him. He is gone. But little Chucky was standing there bravely in front of all of his peers saying, would you please pray for my dad? He's an atheist. My father sitting there remembers hearing the story about little Chucky, that Chucky was the oldest of three and 
His, his mother was a faithful Christian bringing their children to church every single week, yet their father was an atheist who refrained from going to church and even stood against Christian faith and Christianity altogether. He was lost like a sheep without a shepherd. Well, each time the youth group would gather, they often started with prayer requests, and Chucky was always the first to raise his hand to pray for his dad. In fact, it became so expected that my father would often start these times of prayer by saying, besides Chucky's dad, is there anyone else who has a prayer request? Because he just knew it was a given. Chucky was always going to pray for his dad. Well, years pass. Little Chucky, once a seventh grader, was now an 11th grader, a junior in high school. And it was Sunday night youth choir night. Any of you old enough to remember youth choir nights? Remember some of those youth nights? This was a, not a small t- thing uh, in this particular town, especially. Youth choir night was a big night because oftentimes all the aunts and uncles and cousins and relatives would come to see their, you know, their kid or their relative perform to, 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 to sing in the youth choir. And so oftentimes on Sunday nights, you had some of the largest attendance because all of the relatives would come out. And this was one of those particular Sunday nights, youth choir night, leading the service. And so the church was packed. It was very full. And the youth was filling the choir loft, much like this one here. And my dad, being the youth slash choir director, took his place in front of the choir. And as he got their attention, as choir directors do, don't stand, but he had them all to stand. Because I know if y'all see this, y'all probably automatically do it, right? (laughs) He had them all to stand, and all of them stood except one, just right over here. And he looks over, and he knows it's Chucky. And Chucky looks like he's seen a ghost. Jaw dropped, his face has gone flush, and he's just staring to the back of the room, totally oblivious to what's happening around him. My dad kind of motions at him, Chucky, 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 it's time to stand up. And Chucky kind of snaps to it. As he's standing up, he looks over at my dad, and he says, my father's here. My dad looks over his shoulder, and sure enough, Dr. Charles Poole, wearing a three-piece suit, has slipped into the back of the church and sat on the back pew. His wife and the other kids were sitting on their second pew where they had always sat, but he was slipping in, presumably maybe to support his son, as he sang. Well, Chucky gathered himself, and the rest of the choir went on through the opening services and sang their songs, and it came time for the sermon. Also back in those days, they had these large throne-like chairs up on the stage. Remember those? They're in storage bins and in flea markets all around the world now because they don't exist. But these big throne-like chairs, and my dad says, I was sitting there and it was a perfect perch because I could look back and I could see Chucky's dad standing, sitting on the back pew, and I could see his family sitting there on the second pew, and I could see Chucky in the choir loft, and the pastor was preaching the sermon that evening, and it came time for the song of invitation. And of course, the youth choir is leading. And so my father took his place as the choir director. He had all the choir to stand, and they sang just as I am. And he said, my back is to the crowd, so I can't see what's happening. But he said, I know as we started the second verse of Just As I Am, I know that Dr. Charles Poole started walking the aisle because I could see it in the eyes of his son as they pulled with tears. And he said, as I ended that verse, I looked over my shoulder, and sure enough, Dr. Charles Poole 
was kneeling and praying to receive Christ in the middle aisle. His wife and two kids, other kids, started to make their way over to greet him. And there in the choir loft, they had one of those privacy rails. Y'all don't have one of those. So those are privacy rails. You remember those? And that was right there in front of Chucky, and it didn't even slow him down. <laughs> he hurdles that, and he runs down the middle of that aisle, and he just bear hugs his dad right in the middle of that room. And you can imagine there was not a dry eye in that place because every single one of them had heard that boy say, pray for my dad. Well, you can imagine the celebration that was happening that evening. People stayed around for a long time, hugging and embracing and sharing stories. But eventually the parking lot began to empty and my father began to help lock up, turning off lights. He headed over to the youth room where all of his stuff was, his office was over there and turning off lights as he went, locking doors as he went. He thought he was by himself there in the youth building and he heard a noise as he was gathering up some things there in his office and he, he looks down the hallway just out of his door and he sees one particular security light that still happens to be on hanging right over the old prayer target. They had moved it into the hallway so that all the students could see it as they passed by and he saw a figure there He's about to go out to announce himself, but something just kind of held him back, and he stayed back and watched. And he recognized it was Chucky standing there in front of that large prayer target. He didn't know anybody was even watching. And he reaches up, and he grabs that old pen, now yellowed with age, and he just holds it for maybe 60 seconds, just staring at it. And he looks up, and he says, God, thank you for saving my dad. He grabs one of the little pencils they had provided and he writes in his father's name. And he grabs that pen and he puts it right in the middle real hard like that. And then he goes, yes! And then he turns and walks out. My dad, and I think maybe this is why the story stuck with me so much over the years. Because my dad and his emotion, I still get emotional telling the story, but his emotion came out when he told this part of the story, because he said, you know, earlier that night I cried tears of joy with the rest of the church because a lost soul was saved. But he said there in my office, he said, I fell on my face and I cried bitterly because it took a little seventh grade boy to remind me the power of prayer and to never stop praying. And to remember that no one, absolutely no one, is out of the reach of the grace and the goodness of our God. And I tell that story decades later still, because everywhere I tell it, I have someone come up to me after the service and say, I'm still praying for my dad, or I'm still praying for my son, or my daughter, my neighbor, my sibling. And I'm here to say, don't stop praying. Don't, start, don't stop sharing Jesus. Don't stop bringing up his name. Don't give up. God has a plan. God may have a purpose. God may be working in ways that you don't even see. That we, You won't know this side of heaven, of how God may use you in your words and your prayers. Just keep praying. Let's pray together now.
Father, we do thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you, Father, for the gospel that brings peace. That is, the words above us right now say, you are the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through you. And that, Father, if anyone else in this room may be struggling with their own relationship with you, that, Father, you will help them to see that today is the day of salvation. That today can be the first day of their life in peace with you. And that, Father, there may be others in this place who have just a burden on their heart for someone in their family, a friend, a loved one who's lost. And I pray that if nothing else, today will be an encouragement to them to keep praying, that they're not alone, that maybe just during this time of response, they just put an altar right around where they are or come to this altar, whatever it may be, and just pray for that person, just to lay them at your throne and just say, God, please help me to know how to speak truth into their lives. Help me know what to say and when to say it. Father, help me to to have the eyes of compassion to see them like you see them. Even though they may frustrate me, even though they may aggravate me with their actions and their values and their beliefs, help me to see them like you see them, Father. Help me to love them like you love them. In Jesus' name we pray and for his glory. Amen.